Yes. No. Yes. Potato salad. Otter livers. Abraham Lincoln's hat collection. Five past three and then twelve times seventy-two. More otter spleen. What the hell was that? Richard? I'm back! with a triumphant return from the far east of Richard. Hey! <laughs> I'm back. Na, 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 na. What Hello? Was what was that? Was that a reference to something? Yeah, that, that no, was no, 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 Eminem. No, no, no. Oh, see, I don't know these things. <laughs> these new hippity-hop records. <laughs> these 15-year-old hippity-hop records. <laughs> I'm aware there is a musical artist named Eminem who made hip-hop records, and I saw his movie. <laughs> You're also aware there's one of those chocolates called M&M's And that's about as far as the cultural relevance goes uh, For a while there I thought it was just one of the same thing Because you see on the commercials the M&M's talk They sing, I was like, oh, well it seems only appropriate They eventually gave them a hip-hop career Seems like they've gone, gone down a dark path like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, except the difference is they're black on the outside and, and, and no, sorry, they're not black. Never mind Never mind. <laughs> well, there are these chocolate-coated M&M's now Which seems like weirdly redundant yeah. yeah. Wait, so they're chocolate-covered chocolates? Yeah. Is there still a shell underneath it's a the chocolate? chocolate? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a chocolate, then a chocolate shell, then chocolate. Yeah, that doesn't make any That's sense pointless. at all. Just more chocolate. Yeah. No, at that point, you just got a, a horrible candy substrate just ruining your chocolate. I feel like they should make Oreo M&M's, you know? Ooh. With, like, in, like, the chocolate outside and then the Oreo stuff on the inside. <sighs> yeah, wouldn't that be good? I'm telling you, I should be working. Welcome to the candy hour of one of us not next. <laughs> That's gonna be our new show. Isn't candy good? Yeah. What candy do, do you like? Sponsors, just send us candy and we will eat it on air. Oh, that's that is a really good idea, actually. Is it? Because <laughs> my girlfriend might disagree. <laughs> like, no more candy for you. Uh, anyway, we are Digital Noise. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a bunch of really good and some not-so-good titles to uh, review for you this week, as well as a pretty awesome giveaway at the end. Ooh. And But this week, we actually are going to uh, bring back something I haven't a show I haven't done on one I'm on for a while, as I go out and open up... The got mail that's right thank you torgo and we've got a couple questions here for fans first off is from our old friend neil kelly one of our most loyal fans i would safely say hey up, neil i don't think neil's ever not asked a question on one of these and nine times out of ten they're pretty good questions yeah, yeah. he says since it is the tenth one though yeah damn what were you yeah. thinking man God. uh he says since it was the season of film festivals which festival that you have not attended would you love to go to and honestly my thoughts about festivals are that the festivals themselves are normally kind of interchangeable. Uh, there are certain 
specific reasons, things that I have about them. Like, Cannes, I admit, I would only be interested in going to for the parties and to be in Cannes, France. I'm um, like, other than that, when you hear the stories of people, like, standing up and booing and being obnoxious oh, during screaming, I know, I'm like, that's horrible. I don't want to be part of that. What a bunch of jerks. Everybody I know who works in film basically thinks that Cannes is the worst thing possible. Because either you go and you have a horrible time because you're bombarded with people who don't really have films trying to convince you to invest in their films. Or you're in screens where everybody's horrible and, it, and just thinks it's their right to be bitchy about perfectly good films. Or, or even just like, you know, oh, it's, it's a film you don't like. Leave. You don't get to heckle and catcall the, the movie while it's ongoing. You just don't. True. Uh, or they're not there and they're completely incapable of any getting, getting any work done for two weeks because everybody they need to get in contact with is at Cannes. Right. So the industry grinds to a halt. It's basically a complete fucking waste it, of time. It's... it's- spring break for the movie industry where everyone acts just as obnoxiously as teenagers do during spring break <laughs> you know it's their Fort Lauderdale but is the one you doubt you would actually want to go to uh, the number one one on my list is Fantasia in Montreal oh yes which is basically the sister festival to Fantastic Fest uh, I would, and except it's a lot longer yeah, it's, it's like, like three weeks or oh, something it's, like that it's something insane yeah uh, which I could totally do but yeah. it's one of those things it's long enough that you don't feel that bad to take a day off here or there and just go do stuff in Montreal. Plus, I love poutine. Uh, but also throwing out there, I think it's called the New York Underground Asian Film Festival, yeah. which is a relatively new thing. In fact, old Spill fans involved with that, and they have a, they pull out a lot of really cool, like sort of indie and weird Asian films, and then classic old stuff that have gotten reprinted recently. I'm like, that sounds totally up my alley. The only other one that I I, I think that consistently the most stuff that comes out of a festival, I go, oh th- wow, they. They get some really great stuff. I kind of like to be there. Is TIFF the Toronto yeah. International Film Festival? Partially, once again, I just want to go to Toronto. <laughs> you know, I want to check that out. But but in terms of like sheer amount of films I see that I really love that had their world premiere at a festival, it seems like TIFF is like the number one spot for that. Um, yeah, all of those uh, Sitches as well. I've always wanted to go to Sitches. What is, uh, I don't even know what that is. That's I think it's in Spain. It's a fancy festival a lot of stuff that plays at fantastic fest and that kind of festival plays there it's apparently just a really nice cool environment um and the one that plays oh it's relatively new it it's actually at the hotel that they filmed the shining at whose name escapes me for the, the overlook yeah but yeah. the real name for it. the real name is it stanley i think it's the stanley yeah, yeah the stanley film festival yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah, yeah. just to be at a film festival there sounds yeah, just the, ridiculously super cool. Now, I can't remember. Is that the hotel they filmed it at or the actual hotel Stephen King wrote it at? It's the hotel they filmed it at. Okay, yeah. so it's the one that actually looks like the hotel we see in the movie. Because yeah. I know they had another event at one point that was at the place where he originally wrote it that inspired it. I don't remember what that one's called. And the other one I really want to go to, and it, I kind of have no excuse at this point other than the fact that it's usually the weekend before South by Southwest and therefore I'm already losing my mind, um, is True False in Columbia, Missouri, which is all documentaries all the time. Mm. has a very good reputation as just a nice place to be. Just the, I mean, Columbia's a beautiful town. Big college town. Middle of nowhere in Missouri. Very relaxed. A lot of small documentaries play there. It just has a, you know, a really cool vibe. Everybody I know who's been involved with it just says it's a, a really great environment to be at. So, yeah, you know, I think that's the thing with the film festival. Most of it is, where is it and what's the experience going to be? Because otherwise, you can with most stuff, you can just wait and catch the film somewhere else. Yeah. So, there, and there, you know, so it's like, how much booking do they put into actually making it feel like a special experience? Is it a nice place? I hear Boston Underground Film Festival is really good as well. 
Several people have told I me have that's heard a, that. I've heard that one's really good. And I would go just if for no other reason than I can visit my little sister who lives up there. Yeah. That and clam chowder. Oh. Chowder. I mean, it's worth going to Boston just for the chowder. Oh, and and the lobster and the, the crab. Lobsters. And the quality uh, of the now seafood. See, crab is, oh. I'm sorry. Chesapeake Bay is where the best crab comes uh. from in the world. Just going to say. Well, it's better than any crab in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or anywhere else for that matter. True. Yeah. Is king crab totally overrated or is it just me? Yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. It's a bit bland. Yeah, it's like snow crab. It's kind of like, it's all right. Yeah. You know. Chesapeake Bay blue crab. Best crab oh, in the world. Oh, yeah. Just saying. Uh, next question is from another very loyal fan of ours, Justin Zarian. Hi, Justin. How are hey, you? Justin. Oh, wait, I forgot. He can't. I can't hear him. Uh. Yeah. Uh, except for what he wrote, where he says, what locations or cultures do you think are underrepresented in film? I always love discovering places and people in movies, but I can sometimes get tired of the same few settings being used over and over again. Well, I mean... The question then is, are you talking about uh, cinema where, where there is actually indigenous cinema? Because most places now have a good indigenous cinema, mm-hmm. but very little of it gets shown over here uh, or gets any kind of international distribution. Um, I, I, if So if I was to say I'd like to see one country cinema get better distro in America um, and to give people... A, I, I've got to say with still the Scandinavians... Um, you know, I love Scandinavian cinema, and I think just the nature of the countryside is so incredibly pretty. Um, films shot in Britain outside of the south of England, <laughs> most of them are, and even the ones in the north of England or Scotland are actually shot in Ireland. So you don't really see either of those places. Um, and Germany. Do you think Germany is underrepresented? I think Germany is horribly underrepresented. I, you don't really see much about Germany itself. And I love German horror. I think German horror has been on a real roll at the moment. I th- I'd love to see a lot more of those films um, get released over here, just so you can have a kind of more. I think I, I think a nation's nightmares tell you more about it than its dreams do. Uh-huh. Um, and there's been some really great German films which never got distro, and I'd like to see more of those because I think they tell you more about rural German culture than uh, a lot of other films. I'd, I'd like to see that that get more exposure. Fair enough. Uh, I don't know if I have a, a specific answer for this, really. I, I get so much stuff in the mail, and I'm able to quest through so much stuff that a lot of what I'm curious about I actually do get. Um, I'm startled sometimes by some of the stuff that has gotten zero distribution here that were huge otherwise. Like, we're only now getting the first uh, Asterix the Gaul live-action movie, tr- like, as a yeah, American that's translation. they're not very good. I heard the first one was really good. No, then they're yeah. really kind of like. Well, I mean, I grew up reading the Asterix, the Gold yeah, books, too. and watching the animated uh, yeah. movies. And yeah, yeah. These ones are like, I'm not a big fan. They don't quite work for me. I'm just so. surprised because they did make a lot of money over there. I mean, there's two sequels. That's you know? the thing. Box office blockbusters in France never get distribution over no. here. I mean, like, it, it is. It is. I think the only people that seen distribute them at all were was Shout Factory. They yeah. did that. God, there was one like last year, I think it was. That was a big adventure, big CG, you know, action adventure hit, and you know, it was quietly coughed out onto Blu-ray here. And yeah, it was like really. I mean, I didn't think it was the greatest movie in the world either, but I can see if you had sold it properly, you could have made more money than what you did, which was we don't care. Yeah, Fr- yeah, France has a. It's weird how little French cinema gets released in the states. You get kind of the big art house stuff, and yeah. if, you know, one of the the legendary directors suddenly goes, "Oh, I'm going to churn something out," then it'll get distribution. But mainstream French cinema, very little distro over here. Yeah, really weird. It's still a very isolated um, and insular cinematic culture. Seems like Polish cinema the same way too. 
Yeah. Yeah, is there, is there much Polish cinema? Yeah, oh yeah. All oh, right, because yeah. I mean, it used to be incredibly productive. Apparently, a lot of animation too. Always has been. Yeah, Poles have always loved their animation. Yep. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our friends of the site is over there now at their big animation festival and is going to be writing some pieces for the site with trailers and pictures ah. and stuff of some of the upcoming big animated stuff. Apparently, one of the things that's about to come out is a box set of Malies. Ooh. On Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, I kind of want to have that. Yes. I know my girlfriend will kill me if I don't get that. Mm. <laughs> she, I got her for Christmas the the uh, the moon with the bullet rocket chip in its eyes, sort of a ceramic 3D piece for Which the wall. Which is rather horrifying, really. It's like, <laughs> when you, you think shot about the it, moon in the, the eye. What are you thinking? In the eye? Now he's going to be cool like Nick Fury, though. Uh, yeah, he's going to have a big eye patch and direct the Avengers. Where are you getting an eye patch for the moon? Um... Is there candy? There's a movie all in it in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> the eye patch moon. the moon. The eye patch moon project. Uh, I will say in terms of like, I, I know this isn't exactly what you asked, but I was just thinking about this the other day, how I don't feel that there's ever really been a satisfactory film uh, that isn't just a very small slice period uh, about sort of the birth of punk rock in America. Mm. You know, we've never really gotten anything that's about the New York Dolls and the Ramones and everything that was going on at CBGB's other than that terrible movie CBGB, which was, once again, a very narrow little picture. But I would love to see more of a sort of wide-ranging, even a documentary, for God's sakes. <laughs> you know? Uh, there's this great book called England's Dreaming that startlingly has a hell of a lot of stuff about the American punk rock scene yep. in it because yeah, more about the American punk rock scene than it sees about the British well, punk rock scene next which is to, really odd next to Please Kill Me it's it's those two are the best two books I think, I think ever written about the beginnings of the punk scene and uh, with the, and Please Kill Me being a uh, uh, spoken thing where it's just quotes from people that are organized well but uh, England's Dreaming is a very almost scholarly treatise on it and the fact that there would have been no, there was there, mo, almost no one knows that the American punk rock scene was first and then the English punk rock scene. Oh like, yeah, a, average person thinks it all started with the Sex Pistols. I'm like, actually, that's when it ended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the question of whether American punk is really just a substrata of of, gl- of glam merged with garage rock, and well, yeah, whether that's really punk or not, or kind of a pre-punk. Right. Yeah. 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 I know. We got so way away, far away from that question. We did. I'm sorry, Justin. Well, we did, in fact, answer him, so I think that's fair. Peripherally. So we're okay. Yeah. Uh, it's all good. Yeah. Well, let's go into the part of the show that you actually came here for, that part of the show that's known as... Housekeeping. What? Oh, yes. Housekeeping. Thank yes. you. Sorry. God, I got to do that first. Housekeeping. Thank you so much for coming to Digital Noise. Please click on our lick, links of Amazon. Uh, click on our licks as well. Our licks. Click on our licks. Woo! Oh. Well, check this lick out. Uh, our links, uh, our pictures of the titles we'll be reviewing this week, they all lead to Amazon where you can buy those titles. In fact, if you, even if you like go, you go there and you look at it, you're like, ah, that's a little more than I feel like paying right now, but hey, I want to buy something on Amazon today. That's fine. Just start from the link that, you know, surfing on Amazon from the link that comes from our page and whatever you buy we end up getting a kickback from that. And I got to tell you, that actually gives us a lot of money every month. We get a nice little percentage from Amazon. So oh, like, uh, like Johnny Neal, who's on Digital Noise as well, just bought an electric dryer uh, this month 
from Amazon, and we got a huge kickback from that. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a huge amount of money we got kickback from that because he started from our links. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, that doesn't cost you any, you anything extra to do that. It just comes out of Amazon's profit. So we really, really appreciate it if you do that. Can't tell you how helpful that is. Also, please become a subscriber. That's the other thing that really helps us so much. Uh, subscribers have four different tiers of bonuses they get and starting very shortly we're going to have like bi-weekly I believe it is commentaries I can't remember Brian's setting it up but going back to doing commentaries where subscriber benefit is they will be coming more fast and furious including probably doing the fast and furious furious. yeah I think that's even on the list (laughs) what should do all seven we're not doing all seven yes no maybe maybe just the second one do it Tokyo Uh, Drift uh, which in retrospect actually made sense within the franchise which is the funniest thing ever is the only one I've never seen. Really? Yeah, the only yeah. one. Mm. I've seen all the others, most of them multiple times. Never seen the third one. I heard it was not so good. Well, if you hate it because they were going like, it's nothing to do with the other films. And then when you get to seven, you go, oh, no, it absolutely fits in. And it's like pivotal stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, please, you'll see a link on all our pages to audible.com. We are a... Uh, a affiliate of them. And basically, you'll see a link on there that if you click on it, and it'll show you how to... like put in the offer code for us and there's so much stuff on there that's great including I just saw and I might get this myself Carrie Elwes wrote a book that he recorded the audio version himself about the making of The Princess Bride and apparently it is the craziest story apparently they they, like everyone on that film is like it is literally the most fun I've ever had making a movie every day was just like one big totally insane party I was like I kind of want to hear that story (laughs) especially from the voice of Carrie Elwes who's doing impressions of all the cast along the way and everything I'm like okay I want to hear Carrie Elwes doing Peter Falk right I want to hear Billy Crystal Fred Savage (laughs) which apparently the Billy Crystal sequence Billy and uh, Carol Kane made up the whole thing on the spot. They're that good. I mean, yeah. they should have been able to. What happened to them? I don't know. You know. Yeah. Well, Carol Kane's now a wonderful on the the uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Like, finally, she gets a solid role again after all these years. Well, yeah. Whatever did happen to that? That was it Bob Crystal? Huh? Bob Crystal was that his name? Bob Crystal. The, yeah, the guy in the makeup in the Princess Bride, the one you were just talking. Billy Crystal. But, yeah. Whatever did happen to him? Well, last I heard of him, he was doing the Oscars. And then now he's got. Was he I, I, after Princess Bride? I never heard of him again. <laughs> there was got- that younger actor that looked a lot like him, but much younger. But you know what? Yes. Who? What? When? Why? How? He- Actually, he's in The Comedians, which I yes, find, I I find terribly funny. I have not seen yet. He's I really in, like He's in The Comedians with Josh Gad. It's been getting good reviews. Yeah. I plan on checking it out, but uh, Sci-Fi Channel just started new sci- two, two new science fiction shows, so I have to watch those first. So you're done. <laughs> you're, done for the, you're done for the year, and the difference is, you know, unlike Sci-Fi Channel, something on FX is actually like to get picked up for a second season. Oh, oh harsh. Well, Sci-Fi Channel's actually pretty good about it. They just stop after, like, three seasons. Yeah. Yeah, they've got this, the Fox rule. Yeah. Three's enough. Yeah. Sorry, Hannibal. Three's a crowd. <laughs> uh, as well as I'm just going to throw out real quick, if you're not watching Wayward Pines, why aren't you watching Wayward Pines? It's so fucking cracky, I can't even believe it. So. <laughs> it's the exact opposite of Lost. Let's set up this crazy mystery and make you afraid that we're never going to... It's going to take season after season after season and just piecemealing out tiny bits of information. But no, episode five, oh, here's how everything works. Hey! Here's the whole story. Don't nice. worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> just hang out with the characters now. You like them. And I was like, wait, what now? 
Anyway, I'm sorry. We're getting off track, and we're already 18 minutes into the fucking show. Let's uh, go ahead and talk about what you came here for. The The Reviews. And we're going to start off with a little Blu-ray that that Richard handed off to me that he got uh, about... Uh, the bride from Kill Bill, if she was actually a dude that may or may not be in the imagination of an effeminate police officer. <laughs> in rural Germany. In rural Germany. Speaking of which. Was it Der Samurai? Der Samurai. Der, Der Samurai. Samurai. <laughs> this uh, is a weird little flick. This is a label called Artsploitation, um, who put out some really great little films a couple of years ago. Um, they put out Combat Girls, they put out uh, Vanishing Waves, which is my favorite Ukrainian film, sorry, Lithuanian film ever. Um, uh, They went away 15 months. I'm not quite sure what was happening. They just didn't put anything out. Now they're back with all guns blazing. One of their initial releases is Dare Samurai, Uh, which is the tale of um, this kind of vaguely nerdy detective in rural Germany, well, junior cop in, in rural Germany. Yeah, not who, really a... De- I wouldn't go so far as to call him a detective. Yeah, he's he seems a bit off. Nobody, everybody in town kind of mocks him a little bit. And he's at the office one day, and a parcel gets delivered to his office. And he goes, oh, well, I'll take it to the person who it's supposed to belong to. And he goes and finds the abandoned house that a crazy man in a wedding dress yeah. is living in. And it turns out the parcel contains a samurai sword, and, he, and the guy goes, oh, I'm going to go off and kill everybody annoying in this town. Yeah. Bye! Specifically decapitate them. Yep. Yeah. Bye! To release their souls. I'm not even sure I'm clear on the releasing of souls part. This is like Kill Bill and Twin Peaks crossed over and had a baby. This is a very odd little film. Oh, yeah. And I don't... It's funny, um, like... Is it a werewolf story or a queer werewolf story? Because there's definitely a sort of queer cinema thing oh, yeah. here that uh, no, you can't I mean, this deny. Isn't, this is, I think that's the important thing. This isn't just a film about characters who are gay. This is queer cinema. This yeah. is this is you know bona fide, full blown, intentional queer cinema. It is transgressive. It's you know if you like a less kitschy version of John Waters <laughs> in some ways if, Ke- if Waters had gone I'm not going to do kitsch I'm going to do straight ahead horror but he's still got those Waters sensibilities you kind of end up somewhere like this paraphrasing another critic who I read his review of this film because after you see this you have to get online and read other people's reviews just yeah. to see the wildly different takes and interpretations that are out there but he said is this a film a deeply metaphorical and symbolic film about a young man coming to terms with his own hidden homosexual urges or did the director just want to see a transvestite cut the heads off a bunch of people in really bloody fashion why can't they both be true yes <laughs> I, I think that's that's a pretty spot on analysis this film it does have some really wonderful sequences um there's a a kind of quasi seduction scene where the mad killer stops and basically goes well you know really i want to get i want to get to know you as a person not you just as a cop and does this kind of weird talking him through like well what would have happened if we'd met at a bar or at a party and it's a really great scene and then you go but you're a crazy serial killer. You're a cop. Shouldn't you be stopping <laughs> him? I mean, it, it kind of plays with some of the the same questions of seduction and violence um, and the, the sexual thrill of, of cr- 
criminals that you get with Silence of the Lambs, or more particularly with Hannibal. It it kind of goes into those realms. It becomes a little bit more transgressive, I think, for some people, particularly because you're you're depicting basically a closeted gay man in rural Germany, and I'm sure that is not the easiest experience for anybody. Um, And it does come out the end, and you're going, so is he the good guy, or, or not? This is one I think that out of all of the recent exploitation uh, watches, this is one that's probably not going to sit at the front of my collection, mm. but it's one I will definitely go back and rewatch because I want to go, okay, how do I actually feel about these individual scenes and did I analyse this? I think this is a, a movie with a lot to pick apart over time. It's not one you just you just sling in and go, yay, that was fun. It's not Taken 12. Well, while I agree with you to some extent, I also feel like this is very much the work of a first-time film director in mm. uh, oh, that yeah. he wants to be saying telling this one story and yet this, you know, the metaphorical story, and yet at the same time, he kind of undercuts it in several ways during the length of the film, one of which there's no way you can interpret this film as saying, which is what you think maybe for the first half hour, oh, there is no transvestite, it's just in his head. No, there's definitely a transvestite killer there and a cop there. They're two separate people. Yeah. I mean, the, the you know, you would think the obvious answer is, oh no, it's like an, he has multiple personalities and that's like the repressed side coming out. Okay, so you can't lay that interpretation onto this film at all. You have to go with a sort of David Lynchian look at this weird black lodgy world that shit like this just happens. It people has the form... same narrative sense as a Ramstein video. <laughs> people form out of the subconscious, like this guy's transvestite where werewolf and there is definitely a big wolf and werewolf undercurrent to this whole thing as well as if it is about sort of this man making peace with his own sexuality then why does it end the way it does which is like okay now i have no idea what how to interpret what you're saying in this film but none of that stuff really takes away from what a fascinating little watch of a movie this is yep so I really enjoyed uh, Dur Samurai. Derp derp Samurai. Derp 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 Samurai. Uh, trying to see if we have another horror film. Do we have? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just go right into The Strain, which I think, outside of one thing, <laughs> one pretty big thing, is one of the most fun shows I watched on television last uh, last season. Yes. I mean, I I had read the original book from this a long time ago and kind of forgotten about a lot of it because one of those, it was fun but so pulpy and a little bit forgettable. It's not the best written thing in the whole world, but, you know, you read it like a summer beach read and then pass on. Never got around to reading the sequels. Um, But the idea being that in the show based on Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan's book, that this virus comes along into, I guess it was New York City, uh, and the virus is actually this vampiric virus that basically turns people into more like the vampires from the crazy super vampires from Blade 2. Yes. They have like tentacles that come out of their mouth and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah, You can really see where the Blade 2 super vampires come from. Well, rather the other way around. (laughs) Because Blade Two was way before the, this book was written. Oh yes, well, yeah, but it's the same. It's the same thought process. Same, same, same concept, definitely. Uh, and you've got this group of people, the lead of which Corey Stoll, who's so wonderful. Everyone still doesn't remember him because he was so disguised with like his whole like uh, persona. He was taking on as Ernest Hemingway and Woody Allen's. Yes. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Midnight in Paris. Yes. 
But uh, he is so great as the lead in this. There's lots of different characters in here. Kevin Durant, David Bradley, Jonathan Hyde, Sean Astin. You never know. Nobody feels safe. Yep. They kill off main characters all the time as they're trying to survive in the city that's been overrun by these sort of zombie vampire things. And the one downside to all this, a show that's super bloody and really fun and never stops moving, is when they finally get... When we finally build up to the sequence, I think it's like episode eight or nine, and show us the big master vampire, the one in control of it all, and he looks like he should be on Meet the Feebles. It is. <laughs> okay, Gamma, I know you're listening. Because uh, clearly Gamma Del Toro is huge a huge fan, fan of this huge show. Huge fan, definitely. What the hell? You're, you need to take your name off the first episode, uh, off the titles of this episode. Yeah. Uh, for your own good. Or you need to go back and CG something decent in because it is terrible. It looks it is, bad. It is some of the worst effects I have ever seen on any show post-Lost in well, Space. The thing is, I, that I respected that he wanted to go practical. Right, yeah. and he did. He did go practical with this. Okay, it's just a totally ridiculous-looking practical effect. Um, yeah, the biggest problem is, but do good practical. They gave this thing lips that are so gigantic, like these huge, fat, weird-looking lips, and I'm just oh. the whole thing is so goofy-looking. I literally laughed out loud the first time he's on screen, and you shouldn't. It's a spooky lead and an astonished. His eyes are so wide open. He's look. He looks like he's constantly astonished. He looks like Mick Jagger sat on a uh, attack. Yeah, he does. He really does. It's yeah. it's terrible. But the thing is, the rest of the show is really good because it basically it's a uh, medical procedural about how do you deal with vampirism. Um, to some, well, part of the show is that. Yeah. The other part is like The Walking Dead, yeah. the survival show, post-apocalyptic survival show. We just start to get to the you know, season two. Really, is going to deal with that much more heavily. That basically, vampires have sat there and gone. You know what? There comes a point where we may as well just take over. Yeah, and use humanity as as food and that's it this is the the night before this is when this starts to happen and it's you know you have this whole host of characters including uh, the old the old crazy um guy oh, who, uh, who's filch from the harry potter movies yeah who who basically goes no you're all you're all idiots and you need to do exactly what david I tell you. bradley yeah who is great oh yeah he's, i mean he is one of the he, he's so wonderful because he's especially this, when they're dealing back with his flashbacks that he like first encountered this as a Holocaust survivor in World War II yep. with the, the camp commandant who had been turned into a revenant by the, the master and he spent the rest of his life trying to track this guy down and find the master to destroy him and of course everyone thinks he's crazy but when it turns out that he's right he's got this you know a compound underneath his pawn shop in the middle of New York that's walled off and filled with effective weapons for fighting these things. Although my favorite character may be Kevin Durand as uh, Vasily Fett, uh, the the, rat, the the New York City rat exterminator who goes, oh, huh, so there's not rats, there's lots and lots of vampires under New York. No problem. Okay, I'm going to go out and kill them. Um, and he's so practical about it. He's like, you deal with this the same way you deal with any other infestation. Yeah. You find what it is that weak to, that is their weakness and you deal with them. Unfazed. Yeah. And you know what I like best about it? I've always liked Kevin Durant as a character actor. And for once, he's not playing the bad guy. Yeah. He's actually playing the, a hero, an odd kind of offbeat hero character, but nonetheless, a hero. And he's great at it. Yeah. You know, I'm so happy to see him take that part. 
Uh, I actually, in a, a rare move by, uh, I believe it's Fox, they actually sent me the collector's edition of this thing that comes with a bust of the master, which is funny because, like, you're saying, does it look better one, than the actual master? It, it actually does. See, there it is up here. I'm going to pull it, it down. It does. So it Richard looks a lot can... better than the master. Uh, they actually should have used that instead because it, um, yeah. Wow, that is actually a huge improvement um, because the the master looks terrible. Yeah, it's the bust actually looks pretty damn cool. Uh, I will say that apparently, if you watch the trailers for the second season, th- th- part of the thing you see in the trailers is like, "Oh, the master is undergoing a transformation." I'm like, "Gee, I wonder why." <laughs> actually, no, that is in the book. Is it? That okay. is that, that is in the book, and it's actually very well handled. Okay, uh, so, but yeah, if you are looking for a uh, a surprisingly gory nihilist um, vampire drama in which part of the process of becoming a vampire is your your dick falls off Um, (laughs) which is actually one of the best scenes when you get to that you'll go ew that's brilliant Um, but yeah this is surprisingly good I mean, oh, it owes lots of debts to, to, to all over the place. Yeah, but um, that being said, as a TV series, it knows how to make its audience have fun. In fact, I keep telling people I know who are like, "I gave up on The Walking Dead. It's just too boring," or like whatever their reasoning is. I don't agree with those people, farm. but you know, whatever. If you have your reasons for that, and and that distracted you, if one of your reasons is it just takes too long for anything to happen, you should be watching The Strain because. It doesn't take long for anything to happen no, no, in any I mean, given like, episode. Basically, on the here. world's pretty much ended by the end of season one. It's only thirteen episodes, so like you know, you know, you can't, you don't have time to get bored. Yeah, and there's a few extras on here. There's a thing called "In the Beginning," where there's an overview of the plot components and characters, and interviews with the cast and crew. There's a novel approach with Guillermo del Toro talking about how he got inspired to write the book, uh, and then Satrakian's C- C- Lair, which uh, has David Bradley, who is the the guy we we're talking about, that filch from Harry Potter, uh, giving a tour of. Of his special cave, he does best old man grumbly voice on television at the moment. Goes, oh yeah, yeah. kids today with you failing to kill vampires. Mah. I like him. Yes. Uh, in terms of a horror, horror product that you should probably skip, the Lazarus Effect. Oh, now here's a here's a question for you. Why is it that once in a while you get really really talented actors? Uh, who clearly know better and have much more refined tastes uh, and they end up in um, a a low budget remake of Flatliners yeah what the hell who owed who money I mean for one thing Mark Duplass who has uh, I believe he just signed like a seven film deal with Amazon him and his brother congratulations from Baghead to Lazarus (laughs) right actually that looks like a terrible career who like is just an actor in this but he's the lead actor who's named Frank (laughs) get it Frank because it's like about bringing people back from the dead he's got an HBO series as well yeah Yeah. an HBO series which is actually pretty damn good Uh, and and, you know the stuff he's putting out seems not not to end we just reviewed uh, his latest film the, uh, that he produced with his brother, The Overnight, and really liked it a lot. Yeah. So it's like, what made you think this? Maybe he just was like, I want to be in just one of those regular Hollywood horror movies because I love horror. I mean, he did just do that movie Creep, which is much better than this piece of shit. He he has really odd tastes. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, generally I think he's got a pretty sharp sense of a, of a good script when he's doing somebody else's work. Creep has, you know, has been very well reviewed. Uh, the one I love, which we reviewed a few months ago, which is a great, clever, witty, barbed piece of sci-fi. This is as generic as it comes. Yeah. This is 
a Bloomhouse release, and this is probably the most generic Bloomhouse release I've ever seen. And that's saying something. And I like Bloomhouse, but Lord above. I, I Bloomhouse has become less impressive to me over the last year, certainly. with the Originally, there seemed to be a sort of commitment to quality, and it seems that has gone out the window. Post-Oculus. I think yeah, Oculus was the last, was the last, last really determined smart thing they did. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but the story here uh, has Frank, Mark Duplass, and his fiancée, Zoe, played by Olivia Wilde, once again, slumming it mysteriously, uh, who are medical Ooh. researchers who have developed this uh, a serum called the Lazarus Serum, and uh, uh, the idea is that for coma patients, that it would be able to assist bring them out of their coma, but as it turns out, they actually find that they're able to bring dead people back to life completely. And seemingly, like, at least they do it with the dog, seemingly like, oh, well, the dog's fine. That's weird. No detectable side effects or anything, even though the audience can detect some side effects. You're like, we've seen Cujo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, it, has, it also has one of the laziest... That, that sets you up There's a really lazy jump scare Yeah. right then, and you're like, oh, God, and you're giving me like 20 seconds to set up this jump scare, and it's like... Are you going to do it or not? Oh, you did it. Oh, I was so bored I was looking away. Uh, Donald, he's assisted by Donald Glover. Again, slumming Once it. Once again, slumming it. Slumming like it. Donald Glover, who's like on the precipice of a really interesting acting career right now, and why he's in this movie that just by reading the script and seeing who dies first, you should have said, this is a horror movie that's like 20 years old. This is yeah. nothing that should be being, being made now. Uh, Evan Peters, who's in all the, pretty much every season of American Horror Story, I believe, so it's not that oh, surprising. Oh, yeah, but him doing uh, his Im- imitation of um, Zuckerberg in um, uh, oh thing oh uh, uh, the social network yeah yeah uh, it's same haircut and everything it's really weird yeah I know it really is and, and, but even he like he just got to play Quicksilver to great acclaim more than his counterpart did in the Avengers and you're like okay it seemed like you were on a better path than this. And then Sarah Bolger, who's not as familiar to people, but uh, she's on the the Tudors, plays Larry Mary Tudor on there, and Princess Aurora in Once Upon a Time. So she's got a pretty big TV career. But I guess this is one of these, no, guys, you got to be in a big, wide-release horror film to get noticed anymore. I'm like, yeah, maybe 15 years ago. It doesn't seem like that rule stands any longer. Nope. Uh, but anyway, so they bring this dog back to life, but the dean of their university finds out they're doing uh, unauthorized experiments. They're shut down. But they're like, you know what? Fuck that. We're going to break back into the lab and try and duplicate the experiment and film it because they took all our stuff so we can prove we created this. Otherwise, the university is just going to steal the serum from us. But during this, things go wrong. Uh, 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 Olivia Wilde is accidentally electrocuted, which is like, how do you accident? Okay. Um, well, you know, I mean, they probably would have want to design something that looks less like it was built in the 1950s right. for their lab equipment. This is the worst designed lab I've seen in years. Totally. It, uh, I mean, it yeah, really that, looks that, like that, made out of spares. Actors aren't the only thing slumming it. This lab was slumming it. Hey, with, them in biz- th- with them doing this, I'm surprised Radio Shack went out of business, because there was a True. lot of old spare parts in there. True. But, uh, of course, they're like, no, and Frank's like, no, she can't be dead. So he uh, gives her the serum and comes out, and she seems fine. Of course, she's not fine, and everything starts turning Turning into, you know, it reminded me of, of the worst parts of Event Horizon. Yeah, you know, where you're like, why is this happening? I don't even understand the conceit in which you're trying to explain that this is happening. Right? I told now. you, less impressive version of Flatliners. It's like, what? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Flatliners at least has like a story thread where everything that's happening makes sense in the conceit you're given. Here, it's just sort of this random add-on. Well, you know. There's something darkish they going did, on. They clearly don't know what their own MacGuffin is, and this leads to lots of scenes where you go, well, you're just doing that so you can do it. And it's just 
every scene in here, every scare is something right out of a hundred other horror films that were done better. It's all jump scares and solid black eyes and all the same old shit that you've seen everywhere else. This is really just a piece of garbage. The only thing that actually says this is clearly set in even in this decade is the fact that Evan Peters' character has got an e-cigarette. Yeah, that's, right. that's literally the only thing that says this is a contemporary horror film. Very and true. the best thing about it is when Ray Wise get, turns up and delivers like three lines. Yeah. That's it. And you're like, wow, I have rarely seen a film waste so much talent. Shame on you, Bloomhouse. I've said good things about you in the past, even when people haven't defended some of your stuff. I think some of your business practices are still a little bit shoddy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, racking and stacking stuff and hiding it. I mean, like. Area 51 it's, finally getting a release. Yeah, what, like after six years or yeah, something like that? Yeah, stuff like that. Like, that. like, yeah, but this this was just beneath you. Yeah. really was. Totally was. Beneath, it was beneath me to watch it. Nah, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, that was harsh. Uh, yeah, what? what? <laughs> I, I wish Olivia Wilde was beneath me. <laughs> She's terribly nice. I've heard she is a complete sweetheart. Very piercing eyes. Uh, yes. Very striking Well, that's eyes. the thing about her. She has, yeah, it's like, whoa, she's got amazing eyes. In person, they're even more like, holy crap. You can see how she, like, just gets it on, on screen. So real quick, describe my soul, Olivia. <laughs> I know you can see it. Oh, my spleen. I'm very spleen today. I'm spleen-centric. I don't know why. Spleeny? Yeah, splenetic. That is a word. Richard, you got some splaining to do. Ugh, get on with it. <laughs> Next up is Beyond the Reach, a uh, 2014 thriller uh, that is based on a 1972 novel called Death Watch. And this stars Michael Douglas as basically Gordon Gecko from uh, Wall Street, who is just ridiculously astonishingly rich and has come out to uh, I believe it's New Mexico oh it's in the Mojave Desert yeah uh, which is in uh, a whole bunch of places I think it's Arizona where this is supposed to take place well it's in like four states so (laughs) your sense of geography is terrible it really is kind of Amongst other things. Yeah. None of my uh, high school teachers would be surprised to hear me stumble over this right now. (laughs) Uh, But he wants to go out there to take his fancy made just for him pretty much super gun and his super made just for him super car and go out and uh, hunt stuff where he has bribed his way into being able to hunt off season this kind of mountain goat big big horn ram big horn ram and he is assigned by a uh, sadly underused Ronnie Cox as the sheriff here uh, his his a, deputy a, a, really Ronnie Cox is in this wow I, I barely know just barely uh, J- Jeremy Urban plays Ben who is this I guess he's his deputy uh, but he is a uh, assistant to and a guy who when people want to do tours or, or need a guide or something out in the desert he's been living out there his entire life he has a really good feel for the surroundings uh, you know and they go out there and the problem is is that Michael Douglas is determined to shoot something already there's sort of a a difficulty between the two Ben susses out that uh, Michael Douglas's character just bribed the sheriff for these badges so he basically says look how much money do you want to keep quiet about this as well and a bribe is set and accepted albeit a little 
reluctantly. I mean, Ben needs money. His girlfriend has gone off to college. The main reason he didn't go with her is because there is no way he could have followed her out there financially. Uh, there's an attachment to it's his dead hometown. Sad. It's dead sad, that bit. It is. It's not at all, you know, prosaically laid out as, oh, no, my girlfriend's going off. I'm so emotionally locked off. I can't say I love you before she goes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're <laughs> not, not to wrong. be harsh. Uh, <laughs> but... So they go out there, and the, the you know the unthinkable happens. Uh, Michael Douglas trying to take a shot at something he just saw accidentally kills a local who lives out in the desert, the crazy old man of the desert, uh, and he's like you know trying to be reasonable about it first. What are we going to do? And then realizes if this comes out in any way, it's going to really hurt a lot of big things I've got going on right now, including some sort of deal with the Chinese. We don't really ever know what that is. Very ambiguously plotted that bit. So he tries to bribe the kid. And say, look, here's a lot. Here is like the rest of your life. Here is your career. Here is everything in order, if you will, just shut up about this. I mean, you will come work for me. You'll make a ton of money. And the kid's like, "Uh, yeah, sure, with two fingers crossed behind his back. But when it's revealed that the kid's not real sure about this, it turns into a very interesting concept for sort of like a hunt you know the hunt is on type film where he's like Michael Douglas says I'm not going to kill you but you yourself told me people can survive maybe three hours out here in the in the middle of the you know summer 125 degrees Uh, you're screwed take off all your clothes and walk (laughs) now what he doesn't account on is that Ben knows every inch of this desert and despite it being really 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 dangerous for him there's a couple hidey holes here and there a couple little hidden stashes of water and things that he knows how to get to and it turns into a both man versus man man versus nature and man versus himself film all at the same time it's it's got some really strong components i think when it strips itself down ua matron uh to that little idea of it's two guys, one of them just waiting for the other to die, the other one knowing if he le- if he just tries to wait the other guy out, he will die. Yeah. That works really well because oh, yeah. it feels like it knows the environment. Where it falls down occasionally is in some of those water supplies, uh, which do feel a little bit like, oh, well, that's overly convenient, isn't it? That's a little bit MacGuffin-y. <laughs> uh, including one bit where he seems to wander into the underground um, section of the amusement park from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Right, right. I didn't like, think about that. Uh, yeah, the set dressing looks exactly the same. That's a little bit too much. Yeah. But generally, this is a really strong little film. Um, Douglas, you know, not at his strongest, but right. still good. You know, old Mr. Sexy Throat Cancer, as I shall call him. <laughs> uh Sorry, sorry, Mick. Jesus, uh, that was that was that was rough. Yeah, um, it was a little raw. That, much oh like no! But sorry. you know, I think for me, I didn't really, I didn't really question those moments. I mean, like when you see that well, area you're now. talking about, you're like, oh, well, that's the place with the crazy old man who was in the desert. That's where he lives, and why you get a picture of why he lives there. He's a little hung up on the past, to say the least. But um, that's a what what for when you see the visual joke about. Indeed, that. indeed, but. I think where this movie really falls apart is at the very end, where it goes full-blown, what in the fuck, silly? Yeah. Like, why would that... I mean, it's the epilogue, for Christ's sakes, and you're like, really? Why would that happen? That would never happen that way. It also explains why something happens in the first five minutes that is so horribly telegraphed that you go, huh, I wonder if that will pay off at the end. Yes, yes, it clearly does. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's you know I could have done without that completely. Oh, totally. Um, you know it, it, that last ten minutes is kind of silly. It's also not in the original book. 
And it's not in the foot because this has been made before as well. Oh, I didn't realize this that. This is the second adaptation of Death Watch. Uh, but yeah, the, that core plot of two guys in the desert, one of whom is clearly somebody who's never had anybody say no and is devious and malicious and just goes, no, I'll wait for you to die. But has his own clock going in the background. So he's going to like, I really can't wait for you to die because I've got shit I've got to deal with. You know, that use of power. Is, uh, that, was, that was pretty interesting. The other stuff, eh, but you know, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think if you end it right when it seems like it's the ending, that's a good idea. Yeah. Don't keep going to the a little while later sequence because, I mean, you already know something. In fact, you could like, have stopped it like two minutes before that. Yeah. Yeah, this is a film that could easily, but it's only eight to seven minutes and it could easily lose ten of those. Yeah. I, I think other than that last ten, that last, well, last five minutes or so, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. They just leave such a nasty taste in your mouth at the very end. You're like, okay. I, that really feels like a producer went... No, you have to have a clear resolution. This is a film that was crying out to it for a morally ambiguous ending and botches the landing. Eh. Eh. So is cinema. Well, uh, in one of those films that is going neck and neck for my pick of the week this week, there's a lot of the. There's several titles I'm like, eh, The Strain would have been one of those. I'd go like, eh, I don't know. But one of them is Wild Tales, a Argentine-Spanish... A.K.A. Relatos... Salvez. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Argentine Spanish black comedy movie, and boy, is it black comedy. Whoop. Basically, this is Revenge the movie. Yeah. Although the director says it's not really revenge specifically so much as what happens when someone just lets themselves go. When they go, no, fuck it, no. And they just go full hog on something. Not let themselves go, as in, you know, they, they join one of us.net. And, no, you know, no. And become the. Stop yeah. wearing pants around the house. Yeah, start a candy show. <laughs> <laughs> but there's uh, a bunch of different sequences in here. I think all but one are spectacular. There was one sequence in here. I was like, eh, it's a little slow, but it's, it's not bad. It's just, it doesn't really have as much of a sort of. Feel, I, I guess the rest of these have almost a sort of Twilight Zone anthology feel to a certain way, and that one really is just sort of like, well, that happened. Uh, Which but, one's that? Uh, the second one with the lone shark stopping by the small oh, restaurant yeah, by the highway. Yeah. You're like, okay, it doesn't. Was... It, it's a nice idea, and it doesn't know where to go. Yeah, it doesn't have anywhere. To, these to reminded go. me very much of there was a, a series that showed in the UK. I don't know whether it showed in the states or not. I don't think it did. Um, Tales of the Unexpected. Uh, which were adaptations of Roald Dahl's adult short stories. And not adult as in Bomb Chicka Wah Wah. Yeah, yeah. Um, short but, stories that were not like Charlie and the Chocolate yeah, Factory. Yeah, well, they got the same degree of like black morality to yeah. them. Like, yeah, <laughs> they, he really didn't like people and, and often thought that the, uh, the underdog who decides to become re uh, ruthless and vindictive is actually the true hero in any circumstance. He did lots of those, and they felt very similar to these. Um... And you know, it, it basically they all have like a small setup, and then everything pinwheels out of control. Like people on a plane suddenly realize that they've all got one person in common that they didn't realize they all knew this yeah, one which person. Which is which is the, the only downside I say this film at all is that that's the best out of all of these, yeah. and it's the shortest, and it's the starting point. So you're like, that's the one that will. I mean, I see why they did it because it's like, oh, it gets your your blood pumping for the whole rest of this movie and where it goes. It's just the slowest, least effective one is the second one that follows it up, and you're like, Wait, why would you? I guess I have problems with the pacing, but as the director says in one of the features on here, he decided, because he had written them all, and then the hardest part was deciding how they were going to be organized, and he eventually ended up 
uh, putting them in the film exactly in the order in which he wrote them, uh, which seems surprising to me. But I will uh, well, say... I mean, they stick him around because he basically had a lot of half-formed ideas. Yeah. And he was working on a big-budget science fiction film and just went, I've got to do something. I've got to get something out of my head and just threw these down. And so I think some of them are much more complete than others, but it's really True. clear none of these would make a full feature. No. He's wise to make this an anthology. They're per- it, these, these are perfect stories for an anthology. The strongest being the first one. Uh, there's another one with two drivers with road rage in the desert. Which I think it was actually my favorite. Yeah, which is... I really thought it was because that, out of all of them, not only had the tightest conceit, where they basically start escalating their revenge against each other and how mean they're going to be to the to the other, and then you get this wonderful, sick payoff that made me laugh heartily. Um, but I think it's also visually the most stylistic, apart from that intro one. Uh, yeah. You know, that's my one problem, is some of these visually were a little flat, but this is a... Rock'em Sock'em Anthology. Yeah. I, I think all in all works really strong. Well, I was going to say the last one as well I thought is terrific, which is at a wedding where the bride figures out that not only that her, like for the first time ever even suspected that her groom had an affair and relatively recently, but had the temerity to invite her to the wedding. Yes. And this is a huge wedding, like a big, elaborate, multi-family wedding. And shit gets thrown into complete and utter chaos in a very entertaining fashion. Does it, yeah, I think that's my second favorite bit after the uh, the two guys in the cars. Uh, I can't recommend this movie enough. I actually watched it again. I had watched it a couple months ago and rewatched it with the Blu-ray. I just love the shit out of this thing. This is one of those ones I think would make almost a great midnight movie type yeah. thing. It's a lot of fun. If you've not watched Wild Tales yet, you need to go out of your way to pick it up. Uh, and I've got to, got to echo Chris. This is this is a strong contender for my pick of the week. Yeah, you know, it's it's a, a problem. The odds of people having heard of this before are really small, but it's one I think you should go out of your way and find. Uh, now I'm going to talk about something you didn't get a chance to watch, which someday, plus, yeah, with your complete love affair with this show, yeah, and I'm just so far behind on it that I you, really didn't want to get my head stuck in the way. Of I this. have all the Blu-rays. If you want to borrow them at some point, I absolutely do. Absolutely. It's so spectacular. In fact, they've just announced the the showrunner of this is already looking at making a new Elmore Leonard show that's a western, except it's actually set in the old west. Yes, this is the great and mighty Justified. Yes, uh, which is one of those shows that from start to finish was a pretty goddamn good show and now it is over with season six which of course as they do it always drives it irritates me that they release these instead of just saying the final season season six it just says the complete final season it's like I want you to put the number on it yeah. <laughs> you have the number on all the others uh, based on Elmore Leonard, Leonard novels uh, the dearly departed Elmore Leonard this year uh, Pronto and Riding the Rap and, uh, and his short story Fire in the Hole uh, the main character, Raylan Givens, is played iconically by Timothy Oliphant, but not as iconically as his nemesis. Uh, 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 now I'm not Walton Goggins. Walton Goggins the role the on great this. and mighty Walton Goggins. Oh, who is so incredible on this as Boyd Jesus, Crowder. If Sam Peckinpah had, had been given Walton Goggins. Can you imagine? Holy hell. I mean, I first saw this guy on The Shield, where he was amazing. Such a good character that has an incredible arc on there. And then when they announced he was going to be one of the lead, the, lead, the lead villain on this show, I was like, that's what mainly made me start watching this show. Was like, oh, I'll watch anything with Walton Goggins. That guy's incredible. And yeah. sure enough, as his like 
silver-tongued, super intellectual, yet still complete redneck villain. <laughs> like, where they actively, people make fun of him all the time for the way you talk. <laughs> you know, but he's just, it's just a pleasure to hear him talk. It's like, even though Timothy Oliphant is the one from Deadwood, he's the guy who feels like he was on Deadwood and never stopped talking that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this season makes the odd decision of only now adding Sam Elliott to the cast. You're like, you're doing a modern-day Western show. You're really not going to call Sam Elliott before that the sixth weird. season? I mean, there's a no-brainer. And also the odd decision of having him shave his mustache, WTF. Oh, he always looks super... He, he looks creepy without his mustache. Yeah, well... Because you suddenly realize he has huge teeth. Yes, and I think that was a huge mistake because he, he is the villain here. Well, no, his teeth make him even creepier. Yeah, but... The mustache, come on. Maybe it's the mustache that makes the him likable. The mustache likeable. makes him look, makes him a hero. The yeah. teeth make him terrible. The mustache is the the dude abides Sam Elliott. Uh, without it is the justified Sam Elliott. And he's this rich guy named Avery Markham who is trying to buy the town, basically, because they're confident that marijuana is going to be legalized in Kentucky. And he wants to take all this rich farming ground in the area and go ahead and set it up for in preparation for that moment, which seems to be n- not the most well thought out of villainous plants in the world. <laughs> I guess they were trying to be topical to some level. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the overarching plot of this with these new characters, it's not the best season of Justified. That still belongs to seasons two and three, which were wonderful. Yeah. But... Um, it's still interesting. Elliot is is never really given the sort of competence for a villain you would expect for an actor of Sam Elliott's magnitude to be given. He just he kind of doesn't even know what's going on while all these people under him are scheming, including his uh, uh, the girl he's involved with, Mary Steenbergen, who apparently apparently believes that long ago he not only ratted on, on her husband but actually murdered him. Huh. Uh, even though it's revealed to us early on, no, he didn't. It that was a crimp on your relationship. And there's a lot of other characters that come out. Almost all the characters who are still alive come out of the woodwork for at least an appearance this season which is really cool Uh, a couple of those characters die horribly as you will but ultimately this is about the white whale it's the Moby Dick season as Timothy Oliphant is like fuck it I'm going to get Boyd Crowder this season and I don't care what I have to do or who I have to fuck over to do it and that process in him of him deciding do you really want to give up everything in your life to be Ahab or are you going to do this the right way? Is the the heart of the season and why it works as well as it does that com- the, that competition between these two guys that even Boyd Crowder doesn't understand? Yeah. why Raylan Givens is obsessed with him as he <laughs> is uh, that makes this really watchable and have a wonderful conclusion. This was a great season of the show. So sad to see it go. I really look forward to seeing pretty much everybody in this continue on to do other good stuff. Uh, Timothy Oliphant, I think, is also just one of those character character actors who is so great at playing this type of character. I, every time I see him in something that's not this type of character, with the exception of the movie Go, uh, I'm like, eh. But <laughs> when he plays the kind of Western guy, you're like, yes, you are my new John Wayne. Thank this is, you very much. This is much. what you were born to play. This is what you're born to play. But he's, he's got more edge than Wayne ever did. Yeah. You know, John Wayne never had that kind of level of malice. He's, he was always a little bit too... Ro- even Rooster Coburn is just, you know... Is tough and he, he's he's surly, but he's not malevolent. He's and got, often you always feel like this is a guy who, who there's a moment where he'll go, 
nah, fuck it, I'm just going to kill you and leave your body in the woods for the wolves. But that being said, Oilfin does have that white hat quality of early John Wayne yes. while having more of the personality, outward personality of like a younger Clint Eastwood, really. He's the ultimate new Western hero guy, and I hope to see him continue in that trend because yeah. uh, that's what he's great at doing. Anyway, next up is a documentary you also didn't get to see, sorry no. about this, called Tough, It's Tough Being Loved by Jerks, um, also called in some circles It's Hard Being Loved by Jerks. And as much as this sounded interesting, hey, it's a documentary about the the French uh, magazine Charlie Hebdo, which, of course, as we all know, was bombed recently, and a bunch of them died by uh, Islamists who were not happy at all with their portrayal of Muhammad. That is never even touched on or discussed in this film, which ah. I can only suspect was actually, uh, well, in fact, was actually made in 2008 and is only now getting a res- uh, uh, Somebody's clearly gone, ooh, there was a documentary about Charlie Hebdo, let's, let's right. put it out. Uh, in fact, I'm sorry, it's a Denmark newspaper. But what happened was there was a major trial back well, back, way in like 2006, with them being put on trial for being able to or not being able to have these sort of cartoons that they had in there. And okay, that's still interesting, I suppose. But where's the stuff about people dying here? Why is that not, you know, I mean, that's the real tragedy. And there's not even a little codicil attached to this film. There's no sort of sense, hey, maybe we should film some bonus features or something to add on to here to discuss this part of it. But no, there's nothing like that. It's specifically about this trial, which would still be interesting if it just wasn't a collection of talking head sequences. Ah. And that's all it is. It's just talking head sequences with all the people involved and the same music where it's like, you know, they'd use this interstitial music like dun 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 exact same piece every time as they'll go, you know, the testimony of whoever and then talking heads for 15 minutes. And then... Dun, 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 How do you make dun, movies dun, about dun, censorship dun, boring? <laughs> it seems like a real achievement on somebody's behalf. I mean, I, you know, I grew up reading heavily satirical British magazines uh, like the now-defunct Punch. Yeah. Um, oh, good Lord, and is that Private Eye. Oh, yeah, Punch went out of business years ago. Huh? Yeah, there weren't enough de- dentist waiting rooms, apparently, which is really the only place <laughs> I've ever read it. And Private Eye, which is still going, and I still have a subscription to. Private um, Eye, I'm reading you. Great cartoons. I see um, your every cartoon. And, and you know, Charlie Hebdo, you know, there's a really interesting documentary to be made somewhere about, you know, how far you can push satire. Yeah. And, you know, if you aren't going to have, if you're going to have satire, should it have limits or not? Well, that's, that is and ultimately... that seems like this should be about that, but it sounds like it doesn't go far enough. Well, it, it does discuss that, but it discusses that so, in such a narrow focus within the realm of this trial, that I kind of wanted to see people from much outside of this trial and other examples of discussing this, and it doesn't really get into the history so much uh, of this sort of thing, uh, outside of these talking heads, talking sort of offhand here and there about that Uh, but it certainly is interesting to anybody who is probably involved in journalism who has had to deal with it being them being told what it's okay to portray and what it isn't and indeed anybody (laughs) who still has uncertainty about was Charlie Hebdo being racist in this stuff or were they not that it tackles real to an extreme so if you find yourself one of those people who's confused this might be worth a watch for you because i came out on the side of no i didn't i did not feel that these things that they were portraying were racist in fact i think that uh 
I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that if you can't criticize a religion, then we're all in trouble. Yeah. But they kept wanting to call it racism. And it's like, no. Well, <laughs> I mean, you it, don't you know, get to just yell racism. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's, it's a, a core issue about you know, religious interpretation and where Islam is at the moment on, the, on things like the cartoons. Yeah. Because there are a lot of scholars, and in fact, the predominance of, of scholarly. Uh, Muslim scholarly work over the years has been no, these things are not blasphemous to any level. It definitely doesn't deserve this. You know, it just, they're just not a problem. It's more to do with avoiding uh, creating um, altars and shrines to Muhammad. And that's where your problem is because they didn't want it to become a religion about Muhammad. Right. And this is deliberate. So it's about that. And it's this is nothing to do with it. And this is about the rise of extremists in the same yeah. way. The, the satanic verses became well, controversial. Satanic talk- verses is basically somebody who was raised Muslim going, I'm not Muslim, but I have to deal with the fact that people believe this stuff to be literally true. They even talked about how uh, on the, the real famous cover of the, the famous picture of Muhammad crying and saying, it's stuff being loved by jerks, where they had specifically put the headline next to it in a way that it would have been very difficult for anybody to edit it so it said anything different because it specifically says fundamentalists yeah. on it. In other words... We're not saying Muslims are jerks. We're saying anybody who is a fundamentalist religious guy who's thinking about violence is a jerk. Yeah. And yet people still, like, like people refuse to even discuss that side of it. It's, no, you're saying Muslims. No, we're not. I don't know how we could have been any more clear about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and uh, point of fact, this magazine takes on every religion. Oh, yeah. In, uh, in just as dire terms, every politician. In fact, the guy who was the, uh, the I think, the president of Denmark up until last year, but he wasn't when this film was made uh, or when this events were happening it, uh, he was a just well known minister whatever uh, but wrote them this long letter during the trial saying look these guys have taken me on as much as anybody and have made fun of me in ways that like uh, yeah I could see anybody might get their feelings hurt but you know what that's the point of yeah. satire and, and I fully I don't even want to live figure, then you know what I, most of the time, if you're if you're an adult, and particularly if you come into the into the political sphere voluntarily, you know what? If the worst thing that happens to you is your feelings get hurt, well, boo hoo! Right. It's like yeah. it, it's tough to deal with criticism, especially send when it's, your angry letters, especially when it's trying to be sarcastic or, or cutting and uh, cuttingly funny. And yeah, I know shit. I've had to deal with commentators for years. The problem is, is that large religious groups of fundamentalists. I have trouble seeing the humor in almost anything, anything. much less uh, direct satire, and so they decide that it should just be banned outright because they feel it so strongly. Yeah. Sorry, you don't get mm-hmm. to have that. Nope. And that's ultimately yep. that discussion here. Now, once again, this is my opinion on these issues. There's certainly a lot of people who are discussing things from multiple sides, but uh, I, I fall on <laughs> the side with Charlie Hebdo. Some of them are one. wrong. Some of them are wrong. And once in a while, you've got to be able to go, people are wrong and stupid. I just think ultimately the discussion is more interesting than the movie actually ended up being, yeah. unfortunately. Shame. Uh, Next up is Run All Night, the latest uh, cranked out from the Liam Neeson action movie machine uh, in Hollywood. Uh, when did he become an action hero? Oh, when did this happen? It is the weirdest career. I know, but it was like somebody went, yeah, let's get Liam Neeson and turn him into an action hero. And he was like, all right, yeah, sounds easy. I think part of the appeal with, of Taken is because it was like, yeah, here's this guy who's in his mid-50s who is like an unlikely sort of like 
this efficient of a killer guy and you know it defies expectations that he is now that the moment we see Liam Neeson in a movie it is expectations that he is that guy it's now no longer surprising I, he's getting a lot of scripts that I think 15 years ago would have gone to Harrison Ford yeah absolutely. now Harrison Ford's a little bit too old and let's also and be grumpy. honest now so many of his, so much of his line delivery is basically impenetrable very true very yeah, true he's like open your mouth yeah, stop. Enunciate. Stop mumbling. <laughs> Chewie, we're home. <laughs> Wait, was that... Did Chewie say that or Harrison Ford? I can't tell. I love you. <laughs> uh, but this is, in terms of Liam Neeson, cranked out of the Liam Neeson action movie machine. I think it's the best of the lot. Better than most. I, I think it's the best of his action movies because it brings back the thing he does well which is a degree of vulnerability. I would say Taken and A Walk Among the Tombstones are his yeah, this is the, uh, Yeah, I'll tie this with it with uh, A Walk Among the Tombstones, which again plays on his vulnerability. Although it's basically the same character. Uh, it, it very much <laughs> is. The idea here is he plays a former Irish mob enforcer called Jimmy the Gravedigger Conlon, so you know that he at least used to be a total badass. But now he's a pathetic, angry drunk. Uh, he hangs out in the bar uh, owned by his uh, you know former boss and good friend, played by Ed Harris, who's also really wonderful in this film. Also, also occasionally turns up doing, like, why are you doing this yeah. action movies? Yeah. Although I really want to see his adaptation of Simbly. Uh It's not good. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, and he's not even, doesn't even give him that much to do in it. <sighs> Sorry. Uh, anyway. No, I don't. So... He can't connect with his son, Mike, played by uh, Joel Kinnaman, who is a retired professional boxer who now mentors kids at the local gym and wants Res- nothing... Rescues puppies yeah, in right. his spare time. He, he's, he wants nothing to do with his father. He's got his, his... He's married, has his own daughters. He doesn't want his father anywhere in his life, and his father has largely respected this uh, until, basically, Jimmy gets involved in a situation because uh, Ed Harris's kid basically uh, is caught in a bad heroin deal and he's kind of a psycho and shoots the guys but Joel Kinnaman screws over the Albanian mob which seems like an extremely right. bad idea at this point well he's a crazy guy yeah. and Joel Kinnaman witnesses this and takes off um, you know under fire from Ed Harris's kid and it's like, I don't know what to do. What's going on? Well, Jimmy finds out what's going on. And it's like, okay, I'm going, I know you don't like this, but I'm going to protect you because this kid is crazy. And the kid shows up and Jimmy has no choice but to shoot him, which causes a rift between old friends. As Ed well, Harris puts you know, out an absolutely no rift forgiveness. Rift is an understatement here. <laughs> yeah, Ed Harris puts an absolutely no forgiveness kill order on both uh, Jimmy and on his son, which means action movie. Yeah. <laughs> is this John Wick? No. 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 I mean, like, if you want mad Eastern European gangster action, like, for this year, it's that's still your go-to film. Um, is this surprisingly well put together? Does it have better, better performances than you expect from some of the people involved, considering how much they've been softballing? Absolutely. It's got a little bit of heart. It's got some good action sequences. It's got Vincent D'Onofrio just snarling through performances as the last cop who gives a shit about any of these old gangsters. Right. I mean, all that being said, and I agree with everything you just said, it's a really cliched script. Oh, totally. I mean, it doesn't even. It's not even so much that the dialogue is cliched. It's just the plot devices are cliched. Yeah. We've seen all this stuff many, many times before, and often done better. Even though I've still got to give credit to anything that's channeling more 70s crime movies than anything since. It's definitely going for that more sort of gritty, covered-in-suit type of thing. I mean, I, I, 
I enjoyed the style, except for when the director chose to go with these sort of sort of baffling, weird matrixy zoom shots here and yeah. there, which feel wildly out of place with this film. Uh, whereas, you know, you look at something like A Walk Among the Tombstones, which had a much more restrained style, that made more sense. This was like, what kind of movie are you trying to make here? Yeah. Uh, but uh, Common has a nice little role as a ruthless assassin that's sent on to kill the father and son. Uh, not enough for him to do, sadly, because I think Common's really good in most stuff that he's appeared in. Really good on the Western show Hell on Wheels on yeah. AMC. But, uh, yeah, here he's still cool, just not giving a hell of a lot of dialogue. I don't know. I think that this is a fun movie, but it's not going to. It's not breaking any new ground. No, no, no. I it's, mean, it's, it's very, it's very conventional. And it feels like somebody doing a. You know, the direction feels like a solid version of a, a Edswick tribute hour. Who, who a director who I used to really like on stuff like um, Glory, which I think is a fundamentally underrated movie. Yeah. I know. I think you know, the worst thing that happened to him was working with Tom Cruise because I think he's got less and less interesting as the years go by. Right. And it feels very much like that. But yeah, I, I, I still see some sparks of the old Neeson in here, which I, I think I appreciated. And you know, Ed Harris. Ed Harris turning up and just looking like an old wolf in pain. Yeah, which yeah he nobody does. does better. And there's a marvelous sequence when you realize, like, oh, the uh, the son's a psychopath, but he probably gets that from somewhere. Right. <laughs> you right. feel that this and guy you who get is, that there was a time that Ed Harris and Liam Neeson's characters were more like his son. They just became the alphas, survived and beat down everyone else around them to be the t- top dog. Ed Harris did with Jimmy at once, at one point, his most faithful, faithful enforcer and super badass. We get little glimmers of that was a world they once lived in. Uh, now it's not that way anymore. Ed Harris is like, come on, man, I'm mainly legit at this point. I yeah. just, I made my money and now I'm going to retire. And more importantly, his kind of crime now is so low on the totem pole. It's like, you know, he's, he's a, you know, does protection numbers and, and loan sharking. I mean, by comparison to bringing in huge amounts of heroin from Eastern Europe, that like who cares? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say, I will say about it that it is pleasantly workmanlike. Yes, that is probably the best is, way I can think is, of to des- describe it. Adroit of you, sir. <laughs> uh, next up, another thing you didn't get to see is the third and final season of HBO's The Newsroom, a show I thoroughly, aka enjoyed. the not Keith Oberman story. No, I know it might as well be though, right? I, I'm sorry. When they turned around and said, oh, no, no, this absolutely isn't about Keith Oakman. And I went, yeah, it is. It's well, clearly sorta. Keith. You're like, the inspiration was clearly Keith Oakman. Yeah. And to deny that is, well, is kind of... I mean, it doesn't first, follow his path. It doesn't follow his but path, but it is clearly when, when you Jeff by. Daniels yeah. uh, playing a an evening anchor uh, who becomes famous after basically a couple of... of moral indignation meltdowns on TV just after Keith Oberman has been walked off the premises at MSNBC right. as the best damn thing that they had and you're going to tell me it's not Keith Oberman I was right. like oh, come on guys like, it's don't, Keith don't treat us like a Keith Oberman and, and Network yeah. sort of uh, combined and certainly influenced by that in fact if you want to see why anybody has any interest in the show Google uh, Will McAvoy's speech uh, on Google on on YouTube and watch that from the first episode where he has his meltdown and it'll bring tears to your eyes. It's so well written and acted oh, yeah. as he just like, you know what? <laughs> Here's what's really, I'm tired of this bullshit. Here's what's really going yeah, on. The, the famous one where somebody said, somebody at a, a, a Q&A goes, so why do you think America's so great? And he goes, 
It's not. It's, uh, yeah. it's not. Here's the list of things that's wrong with it, and you need to realise this, because otherwise you're a bunch of morons. And it's like, holy hell, this is one of the best five minutes of television. And it could have been an Oberman five-minute. Oh, completely. And, uh, you know, and that's why I... You know, so that's always bugged me a little bit. And I, and I do mean to go and watch the show at some point. And it's like six best the show is as inspirational as that is, as indignant as that is. And it all is going to depend on some level about whether or not you already agree with it. Yeah. I mean, Aaron Sorkin does not write stuff to open up the discussion for everyone on both sides. He writes stuff to preach to the converted, generally speaking, but it's incredibly well-written stuff preaching to the converted. And if you're one of those people who find it, in fact, too preachy, you're probably one of those people who's just not that interested in politics or the politics of journalism in the first place. That's fine. I am one of those people who finds that interesting, and as such, I think this is a great companion show to The West Wing, which is still, I think, the first four seasons at least, one of the greatest, like, bits of television in history, quite frankly. This is definitely something, if you like The West Wing, you should be watching, as this, basically, this network show takes advantage of Will McAvoy being this person who's like, fuck it, and decides to go with that, but at the same time, bringing in Emily Mortimer, uh, ex-lover and... And somebody who's had problems with him in the past as Mackenzie McHale to be his new executive producer and how that evolves over time. Lots of good cast on here. Allison Pill has a great role as Maggie Jordan, a young associate producer. Uh, Deb Patel as well, so who's a writer of Will's blog, an electronic media expert. This Olivia Munn in here as an economist who finds herself often fighting the fact that they just want to use her for puff pieces because she's so attractive, uh, but is actually super smart. And Sam Watterson is the boss. Always nice to see Sam Watterson. There's so many great discussions oh, I really on the show. Rewatch Swim to Camp, uh, uh, rewatch um, the Killing Fields. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. I just watched that like last year. They put it on Blu-ray. <gasps> it's really good. You can borrow mine if you want. Oh yeah. Uh, I think it's it's best is when it is talking about these political issues and has that indignation and fire. And it's worst when it's dealing with characters' relationship problems and the issues with that. It gets a little too soapy. Not that I have a problem with discussions like that in shows. It's just here, it's like, are you really concerned about that right now with all this other stuff going on? And three, sadly, is a very short season. It's only like six episodes long, which is crazy. But HBO put on the kill order, which is because... God damn it, we are living in an era now where in our narrative fiction, people get upset if you start talking about real issues. Yeah. By default, they go, no, it's preachy, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. You're like, what, we can't even talk about real issues? <laughs> you know, We can't even discuss them? And The Newsroom is one of those shows that has fallen victim to that sort of new mentality of like, no, I don't even want to, I don't even want to hear about this because I feel like you're just telling me what I need to think. It's like, or they're telling you stuff just to ask you to think about it. Yeah, we're basically at the point now that if The Sopranos had been about anything other than a fat man in his robe looking at the duck in his pond, we'd all be in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there's a throwback for you. Thank you. Uh, But this season, there's a lawsuit against the the network ACN. Uh, There's uh, there's been a Department of Defense leak that they put out news on uh, that are causing all kinds of problems. In fact, Will is actually put in jail over not revealing a government source at one point. I you know it's it's not the most interesting season as far as the backstory but the the level of oh and the Boston Marathon bombings are the big primary story thread running through it it also I think I forget how long ago that was but this all takes place within that division of years between then and now with how the journalists were dealing with these issues then uh it's still really fascinating watching these characters in, in, interact. The only downside to this at all is just that they're not making any more. Yeah. And that's it. But still, a, mo- a moderately satisfying ending to what I thought was a really terrific show. 
Uh, next up is, speaking of, uh, well, we weren't speaking of documentaries, we're speaking of the news, but I suppose that's a documentary in a sense. In a sense. Let's talk about a documentary called The Wrecking Crew, a 2008 documentary film. What is it I, with 2008 films escaping know, right? this week? I Did think, somebody die or I suspect the only reason that this is getting a release now is because of the recent success of films like Muscle Shoals and 50 Feet from Stardom, you know. and Which uh, I think is probably uh, the closest thing. Uh, the one about the Beatles secretary, Frida. Oh, uh, uh, Dear Frida. Yeah, uh, yeah. Something like that. It wasn't Dear Frida. It was something else. No, it was. It, it was uh, Frida. What a lay. No, sorry. <laughs> anyway, that one. Uh, no, wait. <sighs> uh, this one is about a L.A.-based group of session musicians that were called The Wrecking Crew because they were on fucking Everything. 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 This is like, if you like any movie, movie music from the 60s, you like The Wrecking Crew. You just don't know it. Yeah. This was in the day, like, there's a point in this documentary where they go, this Millie Vanilli thing, which none of them can pronounce correctly, they all say it wrong, <laughs> like Mini Vanilli or something. They're like, this is stupid. That's all music was in the 1960s. Like, I can't believe they're getting upset about somebody else singing in their voice. We did that all the time. Yeah. You know, that was just the record industry then. Uh, the Wrecking Crew were the guys who came in and were the Monkees or the Mamas and the Papas or Jan and Dean or, most notably, the Beach Boys. They pretty much were well, the Beach Boys, yeah, except they, for Brian Wilson. Well, uh, on Pet Sounds. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, they, they were they, this bunch of people who were all extremely talented musicians in their own right. And really, the music industry at that point was based in New York. And a lot of people were finding they couldn't get work in LA and you've got this rising couldn't get work in New York and they've got this rising LA music industry so they go well I'll go over there because I can get work and these are people you can walk in they can read the sheet music they can do the arrangements they can come up with pivotal arrangements they can basically build the song and they are the gap between the songwriter and the musician and and, and the the singer that they want to put out there because there's, there's an era that wasn't bands it was a singer well who the hell is it doing the music and they did everything that you've ever heard of. You know, apart from musicians who had their reliable people they always went back to, so people like you know Chuck Berry. But even Elvis Presley used the Wrecking Crew on multiple occasions oh, and yeah. multiple sessions. And it's going through all these people that they worked with, all these classic songs that you just assumed were by these people, and you're like, yeah, they were singing, but the rest of the group, that was the Wrecking Crew, because they were so incredibly good at what they did, were so good at working together, that... It was, it, I mean, there was really nobody else to call. Yeah. Like, some stuff would get delayed because the Wrecking Crew was too busy. Yeah. And they're talking about, during that decade, they were making insane money. Like, they were like, that's all we had. We had no other life but this. I mean, it was like going from early in the morning to late at night. All we went from studio to studio recording for people. But we were making money hand over fist. They were, they were doing whole albums in three days. Yeah. Yeah, and that's from seeing the sheet music to having, to going, right, okay, see you next week. We're off to go work for somebody else. Yeah, these, these these were some of the most astonishingly talented musicians you've ever seen, and they're not just playing the instrument, but grasping how music and pop fitted together. Yeah, and you know this, uh, you know it's very much, um, you know, it's by um, uh, one of the it's directed by one of the Wrecking Crew's sons. Uh, Danny, Danny Tedesco. Danny Tedesco. In fact, is, Tommy Tedesco is, is the father. only one who ever kind of broke off and had his own successful career, uh, who got really well known on Which his own. Which he managed to do by one time he went on the Gong Show 
yeah. and did a song about you don't know me but you know all my all my music right and, and then some went people up, like holy shit you really are that good and went on to like make a lot of money giving training sessions and private shows for people instructional yeah. shows and they show some clips of that where you're like oh man I'm sad he's dead now because that would be wonderful to see this guy oh I'm sorry there's one other guy who broke out Glenn Campbell Glenn Campbell yeah, yes who was like not the Glenn Campbell like he's not a guy like I'll only play stuff that's like my later music career was which I'm not a big Glenn Campbell fan myself but you get a new appreciation for what that guy was capable of when you watch this movie and go oh no he could like all these guys they could play anything yeah. and not even think twice about it and, Just, and it's it's kind of a, a rise and fall in a lot of ways because towards the end of the era when bands were really becoming bands uh, and you know you've got people like Led Zeppelin coming coming through, and they really want to be able to go out there and do their own stuff. They start to lose their cachet, and they start losing the work. But none of them seem bitter about it. They're all like, "Yeah, you know, we made a lot of money, and we we recorded some great music." And they're like, know, "Times we changed." The, we knew what the deal was. We knew we weren't famous. We knew our names weren't on the records. Well, and they also said, "Like, look, we replaced the guys that came before us." And then we're replaced in turn by a changing in the music industry where people were actually interested in going to see the band playing, where it became about touring and it became about actually seeing these musicians play and every member of the band getting their own degree of fame. Yeah. That was not how things used to be. You know, it was about a headliner and then, you know, those guys that backed them that usually had one, you know, <laughs> were like, oh, the Diamond L's. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, I mean, this is not the best of this new wave of music documentaries it's a little bit of a yeah well I mean the, the guy's making a documentary about his dad and he clearly loves his dad and he clearly yeah. loves the people he worked with but it does seem that most of them were genuinely nice people and yeah. they were talented and you enjoy a, the a give tribute. and take you enjoy the give and take watching them all hang out together yeah there's laughing. one bit where they're clearly hanging out they've got a poker game going and they're yeah. just talking about it and then there's a couple of them go yeah well I kept telling you know, uh, you know the, the drummer guy I kept telling the bassist we should get married because between my money and her money we we'd have a great year before we got divorced also the stuff like you know it's lucky they didn't have all the sexual harassment suits then we do now because you would have had all of our money <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're very very blunt about what the music industry was like at that right. point yeah I, this is a, a solid fascinating little doc with some yeah, really if you don't know about the Wrecking Crew and how much of 1950s through to 1970s music they were responsible for this is a this will be a real eye opener for you yeah I, I equate this to uh, like in terms of quality to standing on the sh- shoulders of Motown I believe it was yeah uh, standing in the shadows of Motown which was a very had a similar feel sort of like okay this is a dedicated puff piece to people who deserve a dedicated puff piece yeah <laughs> fair enough uh, next up we've got Chappie 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 uh, which is the third film by Neil Blomkamp, who, of course, did... Uh, was it District 9? District 9. I always, and, I always and want to say District 13, which is a totally District different B13. thing. District um, yeah. And uh, Elysium. Uh, yep. Yeah. And this film is... Even though it looks very similar, stylistically or tonally, it's not, really. No. Uh, stylistically, it is. Tonally, it's not. This is really... It's Short Circuit and RoboCop Had a Baby. Yes. Is what this is. And I think a lot of the... Because there's not a lot of negative critic reaction. And to me, and I personally really liked this film a lot. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I think a lot of that reaction is that there's just not enough that's flat out original. And that's true. You can't accuse a lot of the storyline stuff here being terribly original, with the exception of the rap rave group D. Ontward, who play major characters here. Just their presence alone is enough <laughs> to give this thing a flavor of, like, I've never seen anything else like this. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
I, that being said, I really love the original RoboCop, and I really loved the original Short Circuit, and the its genes, the way they merged together in here, really worked for me, especially Charlotte Copley's uh, uh, motion capture and voice performance of the the brand new world's first AI chappy robot who is charming and likable as hell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the basic idea is that um, it's a parallel contemporary South Africa where they've gone... You know what? We're a little bit tired of the police getting shot. Uh, we're just going to replace them with police robots. Sure. And there are hordes of these heavily armed police robots wandering around, you know, doing police robot things. And, you know, crime has dropped, and the number of police getting shot is, is dropped, and everybody's happy about this. Um, <laughs> apart from Wolverine. Uh, uh, right, which is one of the only things I will say specifically. I really thought was kind of a throwaway in here is that the villain, which is Hugh Jackman as a guy who basically developed the ED-209 as a competing robot and nobody, the boss played by Sigourney Weaver also wasted, uh, is like, no, they don't even want that. They like these other robots that are much cheaper. They don't want your super army destructo robot. He decides in a very implausible series of circumstances to Very try... roundabout, I'm incredibly evil, where's my twirly mustache way? Yeah, to try and and, and destroy the Chappie program. Uh, and it doesn't... That side of it doesn't work at all. It's just, okay, whatever movie. It's a very laughable, very 80s villain. <laughs> you know, a very... In shorts. Uh, in dress shorts. In dress it's shorts. even funnier. Yeah, yeah they the make t- him so ridiculously nefarious and unlikable. You're like, come on, guys. Uh, and where Sigourney Weaver's given nothing to do yeah. here. But that's the one thing I'd say I didn't like. Other than that, I mean, if you can get past that, this thing that's basically a goofy little fairy tale about AI... I don't really see what the problem is. Yeah, I mean, it, you go through all the standard things of, you know, the robot wakes up and it, it's childlike and innocent and afraid of everything, which is always one of those weird things. Why is it that robots, uh, when you're supposed to like them in science fiction movies when they first wake up, are afraid of everything? Right. I don't get that. Well, because uh, it seems silly. It's like, supposed don't to hurt be... me. It's like you're you're made of titanium, you fool. Because the idea of being with real AI, with true consciousness that they're just like an infant. I mean, they've got that base structure of like, I don't know what anything is, and I have, as would come with any real consciousness, a a preservation instinct. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I get that. And plus, they want you to be attracted to this thing at first. Even if it's a movie where the thing ultimately goes bad, they want you to feel bad for it on some level. So you have to remember, at one point, it was as innocent as the day is long, with the exception of Ultron. Yeah. (laughs) And then, then, you know, you have Diantha turn up and go... Okay, we've managed to get hold of you, and we're going to turn you into a South African gang- gangster number one, which is kind of hilarious and charming. Agreed. I know, think the sequence not least because was- Diane Wood are completely nuts, and it's clearly yeah. Diane Wood as South African gangsters. Like at points, they're even wearing Diane Wood merch. Yeah, I, like, like, like people really? getting offended by that, but I was like. Okay, first off, I didn't even know anything about Die Android before I showed, I saw this. Second, it's just an in-joke. What difference could that possibly make that they're wearing t-shirts for their own real-life It's less fans? offensive than, you know, you're watching a film and suddenly there's a long, lingering shot of a BMW um, uh, logo on a car. Yeah. I found that far less offensive. Yeah. And they are barking mad. The pair of them are completely insane. Oh, and, and it really, really works. funny to watch. Bloom Camp just goes, just, just... Go do your thing, yeah. and I'll catch it, and it'll be fine. This is, you know, Bloom Camp, I think, handles effects 
at the moment. I think I, nobody does effects work better than him. I don't nobody know. merges it better. I have no idea how he does the quality CG that he does for as cheap as he does. Yeah. This looks better than, like, just like his previous two films, than almost any CG you see anywhere. And he does it for almost nothing. Yeah. I think that there's, I, I can't, he's got blackmail on somebody. Yeah. I don't know what it is. You know, I think it's, a lot of the, the evil, the, the vindictive response to this movie, I think says more about a lot of critics at the moment. And I think it, it's because so many of them grew up in the mid eighties and therefore have this passionate relationship with RoboCop. Yeah. Um, and, um, are offended and by short anything. circuit. And it's like, well, you know, if these are your cultural touchstones, then they're going to come out in other people's work. You can't really be offended by that. And by the way, Short Circuit was fun, but it wasn't going to win any Oscars. No. It's kind of dopey. Yeah. Um, you know, I, this has a lot of charm to it. It's got a lot of heart. I think it is, it, it's Bloomkamp's attempt to do something more mainstream after he was super political in Elysium, which put a lot of people off. Yeah. Um, I mean, whereas this still has a political aspect to it. It has a political, but it's, it's, it's more of an un, It's tale. more of an undercurrent yeah. here, as opposed to the current. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very much a morality tale. I think it works really nicely on that level. It's very sweet-natured. Yeah. Uh, which is weird for a you know, movie about a gangster robot, but it really does have, it's, it's, it's kind of cute in places. I, I'll say overall, I, I thought this was, I hold this on equal level with the, the second film, which I also really enjoyed, uh, uh, despite its faults. This has faults too, but it's still a really enjoyable movie. Um, and one of the things I, that makes this worth watching is an alternate ending that I prefer to the ending they have here. That was where I thought, that, actually, the alternate ending was when, when where they had you the thought ending, it was I, went, go. I thought, is that yeah. where they're going to go with this? And it's like, oh, no, they're not. And I'm kind of baffled why they didn't yeah. go with that one. Yeah, it seemed like it made a lot more sense to go that way. Maybe they just made out, ran out of money for the extra CG work. It but, could be. Yeah, but it's... Because it's pre-rendered. It, it's it not adds, full rendered. Yes, it adds... A, a, it's, it's, it's is the ending the way it is, but with just a little bit added on to it to make it that much... That seems like the obvious thing that they would have gone with. Like, not in the sense of like, oh, I saw that coming, but like, oh, this is what we want to see. You're like, well, that was weird. You didn't make that decision. Okay, so in the alternate ending, they make that decision. There's a, a bunch of bonus features on here looking at almost every aspect of this production. Uh, so, ultimately, they made this package well worth your while. I really, I personally really recommend it. Don't listen to the critics. Don't listen don't to your listen friends. Don't listen to the critics because they're don't, wrong. Don't listen to your friends who are bitter and twisted inside. <laughs> listen, listen to us who are bitter and twisted on the outside but really have candy-covered hearts. Yeah. Ooh, candy again. It's becoming a theme. I'm telling you, there'll be a candy show by the end of the month. Welcome to us. <laughs> and also, welcome to me. Come on. Uh, a, a black comedy uh, with Kristen Wiig, part of the new Let's Put Kristen Wiig in Everything directive. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory. Mandatory. And I think you wrote something on Facebook. You're like, this is like they pulled a 90s script out, dusted that they never used, dusted off, said, hey, let's just plug Kristen Wiig into this thing. It really just felt like that. And, and I did not. Uh, we'll come to that. Okay. Well, the idea is she is has borderline personality disorder. She plays this character named Alice Klieg. She's living off benefits. She lives by herself. All she does is watch television all day and spends most of her benefit money on lottery tickets. But guess what? She actually wins the lottery, $86 million. And uh, she decides, after a very brief appearance of being on t- TV to to give a speech about winning where she says something about where she goes like oh and I masturbate all the time and they're like what not to cut that off she decides that she loves television well she already knew she loves television she decides she wants to be on TV she actually comes home and hugs her TV at one point yes she does oh yeah. well come on I've done that every time I watch Blade Runner 
<laughs> with your pants on. Uh, her therapist, played by Tim Robbins, is like, what are you doing? You're off your medication, aren't you? She's like, yep, who cares? I made $86 million. Moves into a casino hotel and decides to buy a her own TV talk show called Welcome to Me, where she literally just gets on there and just talks about herself, has actors come on and play herself and people she knew when she was younger, and then will sometimes interrupt them to scream at them, no, don't do that! In what if had really happened is a show I would totally watch. <laughs> now, I think this movie at its highlight is when that show is first getting started and first you're first starting to see, wow, there actually is an appeal to this uh, because it's just so goddamn unlikely. It's just so absurd that there's some really funny moments early on. The problem is, is that when it starts going with, oh, now she's got too big of an ego and is sinking into herself and deals with, you know, people who suffer from severe depression also can be very, very egocentric, which is not necessarily untrue. Certainly true in a lot of cases. Uh, and it becomes a really funny little indie movie to a just kind of sad and melancholic, not fun to watch anymore indie film. Yeah, the weird thing about this was that it it wanted to, in some ways, be a critique of media culture. Yeah. And this is why I said why, what I said uh, online. You know, it doesn't feel like it's pertinent to now. Yeah. You know, she's... The, the, all the commentary about Oprah is like, well, yeah, Oprah's you know still big, obviously. But the version of Oprah she that this is talking about is Oprah's talk show heyday in the late 90s it's not Oprah now with the magazine and the own network it right. felt weirdly dated it, it really did. and it, like the humor occasionally falls flat there's a real I mean this is a great cast and you're looking at it and going yeah you've got Kristen Wiig who basically just one notes this thing and I know the character's supposed to you know have personality issues but she just you know, this is the amount of depth and work you would put into an SNL sketch. I didn't really feel like she'd really gone into the character the level it needed to be to carry a 90-minute feature. you got James Marsden, you got Linda Cardinelli, you got Wes Bentley, you got Jennifer Jason Leigh, who is the best thing in it and has one, basically has one line in the entire thing where she goes, you're all fucking idiots. But she delivers it so well, you go, holy shit, that's somebody trying. You know, you got Alan Tudyk, you've got Joan, Joan Cusack. Tim Robbins, Tim Thomas Robbins. Mann. This you know, is across... This is a great cast and I'm like this feels like um, Wag the Dog where you have a phenomenal cast and you don't feel like anybody's trying because you feel it's just too hmm see aren't we making an interesting point oh no you're not you're making a a kind of blindingly obvious point and then hammering it home and it's just not that funny I think Alice Klee would have been a legendary Saturday Night Live recurrent character. Yeah, I agree. She is not enough to hang a, a movie off. And I, I really felt after... I was it, This is an hour and a half and the last 60 minutes drag like Hades. Yeah, I mean, like I said, once it makes that turn of like, okay, now we're going to go dark, it becomes very unpleasant to watch. Yeah. Is the problem. Because I thought before that, I'm actually really enjoying it as a sort of, like, it felt like, oh, this is getting really absurd and fun. This is going to feel like this thing is going to get out of control and it's going to become this absurd success story with an undercurrent that, you know, uh, in the third act of like, oh, you've thrown away your friends, now you have to win them back type thing. Okay, fine. This needed to be more broad. And it wasn't 
broad enough. It tried too hard to be like, no, we have to be sensitive to people with these issues, so let's tell this story more seriously when we get a chance. What would Wait a minute, what would really happen if this happened? You're like, well, first off, this would never happen. So <laughs> you're already in a completely absurd situation. Either embrace sh- it or don't. You should have stuck with the absurd situation. This should have gone full, but I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. But it, it didn't didn't know how to. Yeah. yeah, there's so much potential for it to be handled in different ways or in different formats, and I think it would have been much, this would have been great as a web series. Actually, doing the Alice Klieg show as a web series of just this horrible character who you get to find out about because she comes out and does these weird, vindictive confessional sequences on her TV <laughs> show would be brilliant. Yes, that would be hilarious. Or, like I said, SNL absolutely prime fodder. I would definitely not, watch those things, but not this. Yeah, this is an unfinished idea or overfinished or overfinished yeah it hit overthought uh, next up our last two films today are two movies from disney and studio ghibli which is nice to see yep always when they do a re-release on blu-ray you know it's going to be badass yeah they- and, and i have to say i just got back from japan and i went to the studio ghibli museum so watching these when we got off the when we pretty much the day after we got off the plane we're just like just watch these, shall we? You said your wife had never seen either one of these, nope, right? She, uh, she's not seen any Ghibli. Okay. She managed to, uh, managed to not see them, and this well, was just, a, I think, a revelation, and now we're working our way through the catalog. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Have, I might have some you don't even have. So you may well do. Uh, first up, of course, is Spirited Away. My God, are they only now putting this out on Blu-ray? WTF, what the hell happened? I, I, well, they started putting all the Ghibli stuff out on Blu-ray about four years ago and yeah. I think it's just a long slow process and we still don't have a lot of the like Porco Rosso has not come out on Blu-ray I think, I think Porco Rosso may be one of the ones that's tied up in a lot of stuff yeah maybe though. it is but Spirit Away was like probably the most successful of the studio I mean it's the only one that won an American award you know I mean this was the one wasn't this the one that won Best Animated Feature I, I, I think it did I think so. I mean, somebody's going to yell at me if I'm wrong. But, no, I, th- uh, I, th- I think you're right. Uh, it certainly deserved to win Best Animated Feature if it did not. It uh, Yes, it did. It won yep. Best Animated Feature, which was, uh, you know, really surprised a lot of people who didn't know who this company was because, as usual, you expected Disney or Pixar to win. And it was like, no, Spirited Away, not only the best animated film that year, but one of the best animated films ever made. And it was very early on in the history of the... um uh, the Oscar for uh, animated feature as yeah. well. It was like second or third year. Yeah, like I that. think so. Uh, yeah, remember, kids, when there weren't enough animated films. <laughs> next time you complain about the quality and number of animated films, just remember there weren't enough release for them to bother doing an animated category. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, this story is basically Alice in Wonderland with a very distinctly Japanese uh, oh, and then uh, some. theme as a little girl. Uh, you know, and her parents on a road trip to their new town get sidetracked as they find an abandoned amusement park. Her parents get turned into giant pigs, and she gets pulled into this magical world run by a giant-headed old witch that runs a bathhouse for the spirits. Uh, and she gets a as job. You do. She gets a job at the bathhouse, and uh, not like you know. I mean, there's no happy ending massages no. or anything that we get to see. But uh, you know, it's a family friendly bathhouse, and the series this is, this of is probably a, a porn spoof of this called Splooged Away, right? Probably, and the series of, of you know pleasantly absurd experiences that happen to this girl, like mini stories within this her. Uh, you know her experiences in this this world between ours and the spirit realm, just so 
incredibly wildly creative certainly a piece when someone if I knew someone was like oh I've never seen a Miyazaki film this is probably the film I'd show them first say yeah this is the one you need to start with definitely the entry point Uh, and one thing that's really nice I think about these Disney releases of these films is they get such a strong voice cast for the dubs that they are the only films I will say that you Feel free to watch the dub to the subtitled. I'm not going to yell at you. I, the only other um, instances I would say that is um, if you like um, anything that came that comes out of the Madhouse uh, uh, studio in Japan, I think their style is so kinetic and frenetic that I actually think Madhouse are very difficult to watch with the subtitles because you're like, what, where, I don't know, ah, ah, and they kind of <laughs> give you a stroke, whereas I think, you know, Disney clearly, you know, over the years have had so many people and, and so many actors who really care and want to do a good performance. Yeah. I, I, I'll take a, a slight side trip here. Part of the problem with why dubs have got such a bad reputation is that a lot of the companies naming no names because uh, they know who they are. In the early years, did not care about the quality of the dubs. Right. They used the same not, actors. I mean, so they blatantly really, did you know, not care. You know, they were just like, oh, yes, uh, I don't know. Do we even bother translating it or do we try and come up with our own plot? Right. Uh, screw it. Um, John Lasseter, on the other hand, who runs Disney's animation department, his favorite animator is Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah. He loves this guy so much loves him, respects him, honors him at every opportunity. I mean, Disney would never have put out re-releases of these films in America, or much less be still releasing them in their Diamond series Blu-ray collection, if it wasn't for John Lasseter. And his, like, no, this guy is the Walt Disney of Japan. We're going to give him as much kudos as we can while he's still with us. Even though, as is revealed in the the wonderful documentary that was released recently uh, in the Garden of Dreams and Madness, which we reviewed several two three months ago yeah Uh, he's kind of an ass and a dictator and you can (laughs) see the animators are all like yes so was Uh, Walt Disney (laughs) Miyazaki-san is is, uh, it is a great pleasure and honor to be working here and I'm I'm, don't get to leave my desk and then she turns to the camera call the police (laughs) Uh, but this is really spectacular oh yeah and And this is a a beautiful classic Miyazaki you know his his depiction of spirits and of the and just everything is is weird and creative and you don't there's a scary edge to it and I think this is really where he refined that look this is the one where you go okay there's a Miyazaki style that is absolutely definable that he's been working to and after this he kind of you know everything kind of spirals out from here I think this is kind of the the hmm. nexus point of his, of his yeah, I feel like that, that happened a lot earlier than this no no I think this is the point where he refines it like you go oh yeah well everything leads to this and comes out from this this yeah, is such maybe a so. this is such a perfect culmination I mean it's like you know you look at at Spielberg there's those films in his mid-career point where you go he absolutely gets it you know, this is where everything's leading from, and he's never and everything kind of after that everything refers back to this. Yeah, I think it has that feel. Fair enough. Uh, and this being, you know, a, a Disney re-release, it looks phenomenal. There's a storyboard sequence. There's the thing about the art of Spirited Away. Uh, a look at the American voice actors who came onto this, including Suzanne Plachette, Susan Egan, David Ogden Steers, John Ratzenberger, of course. <laughs> John Ratzenberger, who just uh, lives at Disney now. I know. Uh, there's a old a television, a 42-minute television special that is like a visit to Studio Ghibli and looks into during the production of Spirited Away stuff. Uh, John Lasseter introduction. Uh a collection of the original trailers and promos. 
uh, you know, this is just a must own. And honestly, this is my pick of the week because it's just, I mean, it's so essential to have yeah. this. I think I'm going to have to go with, go with you on that. I think, I think this just one just edges out um, the Wrecking Crew for me, which is okay. uh, the Wrecking Crew and, and Wild Tales. I think they're, they're very close in, but this is, you know, uh, a landmark piece of, of animation. It's a landmark piece of anime. And I think it's one of those ones that, if you've got a friend who goes, I don't like anime, show them this. Yeah. You'll probably change their mind. Now, the one it edges out for me is the other uh, uh, Ghibli release. Not Miyazaki, but Studio Ghibli release, The Cat Returns. Uh, this was actually, I believe, a one-off direction uh, from there. I think there's only two other directors other than the two main guys that Ghibli have ever made features. And I think one of those is Miyazaki's son, so that scarcely well, counts. The, the one who... Uh, well, no, I'm sorry, so three now. But uh, the one who made the film Whisper of the Heart, they were prepping to be sort of the new blood guy. The guy who was going to come in and officially be handed the torch and Ghibli to like come in. And the movie did great. And he died. <laughs> That's unfortunate. But apparently the movie was uh, received well enough. They got the other guy, Hiroyuki Morita, to make The Cat Returns, which is a spinoff of Whisper of the Heart, even though Whisper of the Heart is actually a real-world film with a certain level of like imagination in it. Cat Returns is decidedly not no. a real-world film. This is total... Whereas uh, 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 Spirit Away is akin to... Uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, this is akin to The Wizard of Oz, I would say, in many ways. And this is certainly, like, even for Ghibli, like, it's a slightly simpler form of animation to it. Uh, its storylines are even a little bit more kid-friendly than Ghibli always is. I mean, certainly they go that way as well. Look at Kiki's Delivery Service and My Neighbor Totoro. That being oh, said, taro. this is oh, as good as almost anything Ghibli actually puts out, I yeah. think, and is a wonderfully charming story about a girl named Haru, high school student, who uh, discovers after she saves a strange-looking cat from being hit by a truck that she has the ability to talk to cats. And the cat is like, I'm actually the prince of my kingdom, and you will be rewarded. And the king cat comes along and says, yes, you're given this huge list of rewards because we're so thankful. Unfortunately, cats don't think real about real clearly what would be rewards for them and what would be rewards for humans. Because they're cats. Yeah. And so she starts getting stuff like lockers filled with mice and things like that. And so she's going, okay, this is untenable. They stick, they stick catnip in her uh, pockets, and therefore she's followed by all the regular earth cats. Right. So she's like, this is stupid. So she ends up finding, uh, through the help of a uh, intangible voice, uh, the Cat Bureau in this sort of world realm with, between realms, where she meets uh, the coolest cat maybe ever on film, <laughs> the James Bond of cats, the Baron, uh, who is voiced here by Karen Elwes, Anne Hathaway, by the way, a voice in the main character. And he becomes, basically says, okay, we're going to actually have to go to the cat kingdom to deal with this. And this Baron is a cat himself, but dressed up in a suit, and he's just, he's kind of, I mean, he's very sort of like, uh, who was the main guy in the Avengers television series? Oh, uh, Steed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like him, kind of. Except maybe even a little more clipped, but yet a little more likable. <laughs> uh, and so they go on this whole adventure to go to the Cat Kingdom to try and convince them that this is not what she wants, even though the king has already set up that she is going to have to marry the prince when he gets back from some voyage he's on, no matter what. She's slowly transforming into a cat herself, and basically there's cats everywhere, and goddamn in my It's like house. your house. I know, right? It's like here, except they have magic powers. Except for... The, well, the one power these cats have is they can complain until I feed them. Yes. They can magically make which me is, Which them. is... It's a skill. It is a skill. Yep. 
I thought this was completely charming as hell, above and beyond my love of cats. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's super silly, and all the points in which you like, oh, there's little tie-ins even to The Wizard of Oz. Like, there's even a character named Toto in here at one point, uh, played by Elliot Gould. Oh, also Peter Boyle, Tim Curry, uh, Judy Greer, Renee... I always have trouble saying his name. Renee Aubergine. Renee Aubergine. Thank you. Uh, Kristen Bell. This has got a great voice cast, and it is a terrific Miyazaki, or not Miyazaki, Ghibli film to check out. I bet you a lot of you guys who like Studio Ghibli have never seen this one. Put it on your damn list. Uh, this is also very definitely one that is much more accessible to kids. There's yeah. occasionally some stuff in Ghibli where you, you could look at it and go, yo, is a 10-year-old? Yeah going to get a bit freaked out by some of this because it's gone weirdly dark I mean I yeah. love uh, Nausicaa uh, you oh, know, yeah. I love uh, but it's not for little kids no yeah, I, yeah like 13 and, and up <laughs> yeah this is but this is you could you could stick your your six year old niece in front of it she'll get she'll go kitty's pretty yeah they'll uh, be entranced yeah <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely wonderful belongs on the shelf with all the other Disney classics and all the other Ghibli classics there's a storyboard uh, you know whole film with the storyboards as well a 34 minute making of production documentary uh, behind the microphone look uh, with the voice cast again and then trailers and spots just a great man I'm so I, happy to get both of these I always wonder how they managed to get access to um, Ghibli to get them to do those kind of uh, TV specials because all the interviews with them all seem to be like no we're just coming to work and we don't really like dealing with human beings I think it's uh, that's one of the favourite things that, uh, if you do go and watch uh, Kingdom of Dreams and Madness uh uh, Suzuki, who's the producer, who's done pretty much everything, is one of the co-founders of the studio. That man deserves a special Oscar just for getting the people he works with to even tolerate being around another humans long enough to make films <laughs> yeah. and to you know turn Ghibli into the Leviathan it's been. Because you know, Miyazaki and the, end, the other guy who's called guy whose name escapes me, a they can barely stand each other, and b True. they'd both rather go sit in a dark room and work on the same sketch for fifty years. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating little film. Uh, all right, well, that brings us to the end of our show, except for that one last thing that we do. Oh, uh, what is that? What is that? Well, yeah, it's know. the uh, giveaway. Oh, I've missed doing that. And we've got a pretty cool giveaway for you this week. This relates back to, I believe it was last week's show, or maybe the week before, where we talked about the Parks and Recreation complete set. Well, I'm not giving you the Parks and Rec complete set, but I am going to give you guys... Parks and Recreation Season 4, Season 5, and Season 6. Just one winner. Going to hand all three of these on DVD. Complete seasons of 4, 5, and 6. Really, really solid. Maybe the best of the run of the show, quite frankly. We're going to give that to the winner who gets on Twitter, goes to at one of us net, uh, and hashtags uh, Parks and Rec Giveaway. And you have to answer the question. Uh, Parks and Recreation is about a you know what one would think would be the least interesting department of local government to uh, make a show about, but it's pretty damn funny. What would be the worst government entity to try and do to a, a sitcom about? Oh, yeah. So send us your answer on that. Follow us, uh, one of us net on Twitter hashtag Parks and Rec. That's Parks A N D Rec giveaway. Uh, yep. Best stupid answer wins. Yep. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard, for being back on the I've show. I've missed it. I, I have missed it. I'm, I'm sorry I've been away so long, but I did. I you know, I had an amazing time on my honeymoon. 
Not only would I like to establish that I never want you to leave again, but in fact, you may notice I've attached a chain to your foot and the couch, so you can never leave again. Uh, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Thank you for understanding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Catastrophe to Criterion, I got that backwards. You we did. review them all. Yay! Bye-bye. <laughs>